to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you for listening, making commitment to your learning. We hope that you're having a wonderful week. I'm one of your hosts, Yvonne Brandenburg. Um, Jordan's out this week. She's she's got her last week of reprieve, and then we're gonna we're, next week we're coming back because this is our last week in the series of oncology. Uh, if you've joined us so far, you know who's here. We've got Danny Decormia. Hey, girl. Hello. And then we have Miss Jenny Fisher. Hello. Hey, girl. Hey. Hey, girl. Hey. Um, our two VTSs in oncology, so they're super smart. And we were just giggling before we started recording because I can read their notes, but I have no idea what some of these acronyms mean. <laughs> so this is this is why we have super smart people come on. Um, but just a quick reminder: um, we are working on getting these race approved. Um, and once they're approved, we'll let you guys know. But for now, definitely self-study. Um, again, <laughs> you could be a baby tech just learning, or you can have your VTS and learn about things that you're like, I didn't even know that. So um, definitely, you know, keep in, keep getting our learn on. Um, this week, we're talking about the, the basics of oncology, so prep and safety. Um, and we kind of, we, we wanted to end on this just because... Um, it, it, all the stuff that we've talked about in the previous weeks, you know, it, is more disease-based. This is going to be technician safety, patient safety, client safety, <laughs> world <Right>. safety. <laughs> um, so this is, uh, you know, this is going to be related to all the previous episodes plus more, obviously. Um, so that's kind of why we, we put this at the end. It wasn't, we just, we had to put it somewhere. We are like, do we do it in the beginning or do it in the end? We're doing it at the end, but um, this is going to be, you know, as a technician, things that you definitely need to know if you're anywhere involved with oncology, whether you're in oncology or you're, you know, at a GP and you're handling patients that see an oncologist, this Mm -hmm. is all stuff you still need to know. Um, So on that lovely note, (laughs) take it away, ladies. (laughs) Absolutely. And pretty much the previous weeks, we wanted to really dive into the the different kinds of cancer and spend all of our time talking about that because a lot of the treatment is chemotherapy, but a lot of the handling is the same depending on Mm. um, which drug you're handling. So we figured one big talk on that topic would cover just about everything that you're touching (laughs) in oncology. So Mm. we are talking about the chemotherapy safety for preparation and administration but we're also going to really dive into USP 800 and that, if you have no idea what the heck I just said, uh, what code was that? It is <laughs> that the United States Pharmacopeia, <laughs> right? That was me several years ago when I first heard of this, um, but it's the hazardous drug handling guidelines. Mm-hmm. So this is not just chemotherapy. This does affect more of the hospital than you would actually think. Um, it went through a couple appeals. It was, it's a big deal. We're going to go through some of the steps, especially with some of the things for the handling. This is not enforced the same across the board though. 
So right. some states, the pharmacy, the state pharmacy boards will enforce it. Some states, OSHA will enforce it. And in even others, the veterinary boards will actually enforce <laughs> it. Um, Just like so, everything in veterinary medicine, it depends on what state you're in, what country you're in, how right. these things are handled. And one of the biggest things I really want to hammer home is this is not to make your job harder or mm. to make you have to do extra steps and make everything worse. This is to keep you safe because there yeah. are a lot of hidden dangers in handling the chemotherapies or the other hazardous drugs that people may not think of um, or even realize is part of it. And honestly, once you make those changes in your process and your flow, they've actually done studies to show that it doesn't take you longer. Um, mm. it's honestly, it's that learning curve though. Like when you're changing right. something, it of course takes longer because you're just not used to it. So I just wanted to make sure to mention that it, it's not to make things harder. It's to make them safer because you're saying it is paramount. Um, cause we so, want you to stay in this profession as long as possible. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Because yes. And we don't want you to have negative effects after you get out because of the mm. job, the great job that you've been doing. So good point. Um, chemotherapy. So it's the safety applies to all group one drugs on the NIOSH hazardous drugs list. That's N I O S H. You can definitely Google that and find that mm. hazardous drugs list. I actually strongly recommend that you do because you will potentially be surprised at some of the drugs that are on there that you may or may not handle on a fairly regular basis. Um, I feel like in veterinary medicine, a lot of us know that chloramphenicol is oh, yeah. on that list um, because of the side effects that it can cause in humans and the anemia. We always wear gloves, right? But uh, I feel like ER would know that misoprostol is on that list. Right. Um, or one of the big ones that people don't know is apomorphine. Apomorphine is actually on our hazardous drug list. And- huh. It's technically supposed to, you're supposed to use the closed system to draw that up or administer it. So that is definitely something to look into if that is an injectable drug that you carry. So you would be very surprised. I think zonisamide is also on there. There's a lot of drugs that we handle that are on that list. Methamazole is really big for internal medicine. Yes. That one's yeah. on there as well. So when you're thinking about, right. So the, um, oh gosh, the cats that you can't give many meds. So they get the transdermal that they're putting on the ear. That's, that's a hazardous drug just so you know, and we want to make yeah. sure to educate our clients to that as well. Well, and so, hopefully you guys all have like your OSHA or your MSDS binders too. Cause like you really should have that in every clinic. Um, and, and the hazardous drugs that you have should be in those binders so that you understand. But if you don't definitely go look them up for sure. And so these, there's, there's three groups of drugs. Um, group one, obviously that's where most of our chemotherapies fall. The other drugs do tend to fall into uh, group two or three. And so these classes of drugs, so it's the anti-neoplastic or cytotoxic agents, biologic agents, antiviral agents, immunosuppressive. And then there's some drugs from other classes mixed in there as well. Um, but they're divided in those because their actions on humans are all similar to each other. So keeping mm. that in mind. 
I am definitely going to let Jenny talk a little bit more about what makes something a group one, what makes it a group two versus a group three. One of the things that I definitely like to hammer home, especially because we are so female prevalent in the veterinary mm. profession is a lot of these drugs affect fertility, um, or pregnancy. So keeping that in mind, if you are of that age or going to be doing that, it can also affect men that way too. And not a lot of people think about that. So I just wanted to put that out there because so many of us want to have families and we start at such a young age in the veterinary field that sometimes you've done it for 10 years because you're now like late twenties, early thirties. And now you're going to have a family that you've been doing this for 10 years. So keep that in mind. So with that, I'm going to turn all these beautiful specifics on over to Miss Jenny. Yeah, anybody who knows me, including Danny, knows that chemotherapy safety is my jam. Um, it's, <laughs> it's absolutely what I love talking about. Um, and I, I, I really want our listeners to think about two pieces of paper or two documents that we're really going to focus on. And the first one is that NIOSH hazardous drug list. So National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. So that is one of the groups that sets training guidelines. So training or how to implement certain safety standards within to the hospital. They are also responsible for creating this hazardous drug list. And just like Danny mentioned, our hazardous drug list contains everything from cytotoxic agents, biologic agents, um, immunosuppressives, but they're divided into three groups based upon um, their, their harm or their, their, their level um, of concern. So group one is going to be all of our cytotoxic agents. That's our chemotherapy. Those are drugs that have multiple criteria of a hazardous drug. Now, what are those criteria? They are listed at the top in the beginning of the NIOSH hazardous drug list. I think there's five. Um, and it's things like teratinogenicity, mutagenicity, carcinogenicity, um, can defect um, an embryo or developing fetus. And then there's one more that always slips my mind. Um, but that group one drugs have all of those criteria. All right. So they fit into that specific group one. Group two drugs are going to be drugs that have one or maybe more, but not all of those hazardous drug criteria. Okay, so that takes out that cytotoxic group. That's gonna include things like our biologic agents, those antivirals um, and some other drug classes. Group three hazardous drugs are drugs that pose specifically a reproduction um, or a uh, hormone disruption. So that's going to be things like methimazole, right? Things like Pitocin, oxytocin, um, those type mm. of drugs. So although they have some um, criteria, their level of danger is divided amongst those three groups. So today we're specifically going to focus more on those cytotoxic agents or those group one drugs. Uh, and this is going to be our main, our main um, reference for those drugs. Now I said that we're going to have two pieces of paperwork that we're going to talk about. The first is going to be that NIOSH hazardous drug list. It's typically printed every two years. Um, the last one that I know is in full print is the 2016 list. The 2020 list has been submitted for approval. Um, so it is out there, uh, but it has not been, I think it's still open for public comment. Uh, but the other piece of paperwork is what's called, or document is called USP 800. Like Danny said, USP or US Pharmacopeia um, is an independent organization 
that sets standards. Okay, so they are the ones who set the standards. NIOSH is the group that teaches us how to achieve those standards. And then groups like OSHA, pharmacy board, veterinary boards, they are the enforcers, okay? So we have these three kind of different tiers of groups that do different jobs, right? USP 800 is the specific safety chapter um, in reference to group one handling, all right? So any patient that receives chemotherapy is going to have to, um, you're gonna have those handling as well as those administration safety issues, all right? Now, when we talk about chemotherapy, there are two large groupings that we kind of divide them into. The first is called maximum tolerated dose or MTD. This is typically going to be IV chemotherapy. So when you're thinking about you know, your lymphoma patients that are receiving CHOP, they are receiving MTD chemotherapy. And what that means is exactly what it says. It is the maximum or highest dose that we can give without causing life-limiting um, alterations or side effects. The second grouping of chemotherapy type delivery is what we call metronomic. And that's going to be daily or every other day oral chemotherapy that's typically given at home, which is going to present um, kind of a different safety aspect. So we're talking about how clients handle it within um, their home. But these two different uh, maximum tolerated dose and metronomic have different safety implications not only based upon the method of delivery, but also USP 800 in that safety chapter only applies within the hospital. Once those drugs walk out your door and go home with a client, USP 800 no longer applies. Now, what does that mean? Hmm. That means that it is our job as veterinary professionals to educate owners on the safety of handling these drugs because there are no guidelines um, that are out there produced by any type of government agency on how to handle that. And think about all the people who probably take chemotherapies at home, right? Um, I mean, chemotherapy, oral chemotherapy is not just an animal thing. There's lots of people um, that take immunosuppressive or cytotoxic agents within their home as well. So two different uh, methods of delivery because one is within the hospital, they do apply directly to USP 800, those delivered outside of the hospital, although they should, in my opinion, follow those same guidelines. There are no printed government guidelines um, to cover that information. Now, hmm. you know, IV and oral are the two typical routes where we think about chemotherapy being given, but we can also give uh, intracavitary. So if you've ever seen a patient with carcinomatosis, right, where we get that pleural effusion, a carcinoma, um, those patients will be given intracavitary drugs like carboplatin. And so you can imagine injecting a chemotherapy agent into the chest could probably present its own issues, right? Um, so just like we're doing any type of synthesis, imagine doing a synthesis, a thoracocentesis, and then infusing 45, 50 mils of chemotherapy within to the, the, the chest. So ob yeah, obvious uh, different uh, safety aspects as well. Same thing with intralesional, where we inject a chemotherapy agent directly into a tumor, right? You can't use a needle-free system or a closed system transfer device 
when you're doing something intracavitary, there has to be a needle on there, right? So that's going to open up other safety um, concerns as well. Uh, and then also ECT or electrochemotherapy. This is another one, uh, another delivery method that has some of these kind of different safety um, concerns as well, because we start that with intralesional. So we inject a chemotherapy, typically bleomycin, or in some cases, cisplatin um, into the tumor and then deliver an electrical stimulus to that tumor in hopes that we are breaking down the cell wall, allowing for better penetration of the chemotherapy within the cell. So depending on the method of delivery, the safety may vary a little bit, all right? Now, those group one drugs or those cytotoxic drugs, those are going to have to have pretty specific handling guidelines set forth in USP 800. And if you were to read USP 800, you would come back more confused um, than you could ever <laughs> imagine. Um, I've probably, mm, no joke. Right. Yeah, I've probably read it 200 times. I'm not joking. And uh, I learn a little bit more every time and I get a little bit more confused um, every, every time as well. Um, you know what? They actually have some clarifying documents now because I believe that the veterinary community, when they were appealing certain parts of it, really stressed that it was confusing um, and hard to read. So I have seen them mm -hmm. trying to put together um, some more concise documents that are easier to understand. Yeah. And the, the FAQ page on USP 800 is a great resource. I recommend you start there at the USP 800 FAQs and not the PDF document of full USP 800. Because, <laughs> um, the, the FAQs kind of help narrow it down. But what USP 800 kind of says in a, in a uh, kind of skimmed down version is there are basically four different um, modalities that have to be in place or should be in place for safety when handling these group one drugs. The first thing is, is proper PPE and correct PPE, right? We're all pretty familiar mm -hmm. with PPE. Um, now the PPE required for those group one drugs are going to be a uh, impervious cuffed disposable gown that should be worn. It's going to be two pair, not one pair, two pair of nitrile chemotherapy ASTM approved gloves. Uh, and they should all be ASTM. There's going to be a little uh, stamp on the side of the box. It's going to let you know it's all about the thickness of the gloves. <clears throat> it is recommended to wear a mask or respirator anytime a spill could occur. And in my mind, that's anytime you're handling these drugs. Uh, but it doesn't say specifically in USP 800 when those times are. It's pretty broad. Um, but if I were to interpret that, that would mean anytime I'm handling those. So um, respirator masks, anything from an N95 to an N99. Um, and we're all very familiar with masks um, these days um, and what those, Yay, COVID. <laughs> yeah, yeah, COVID. Uh, and what those are. Uh, the uh, next thing is that closed system transfer devices or CSTDs are required for administration. So if you are administering oh. group one drugs in your hospital and you are not using a closed system transfer device, you are not in or not following guidelines for handling those drugs. It is not required that a needle-free device be used for preparation. So what does that mean? That means when you're in your hood or your um, 
primary engineering containment that you can use a needle to prepare those medications. But before administration happens, a needle-free safety device must be put on. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? It's very frustrating, um, but but it is. And the re- and the reason for that, because I hit them pretty hard on this topic, the reason that they did it that way is because you're supposed to be inside your biosafety cabinet preparing these medications. Your your biosafety cabinet or your contain your primary engineering containment should be located within a negative pressure room. That is called Mm -hmm. your secondary engineering containment. And so the thought is, is using that needle, as long as you are within that cold controlled space, if there was to be a spill, it's going to be contained within that primary containment and secondarily covered by being in a negative pressure room, which is exhausted or vented to the outside of the building. So Hmm. there's kind of like two levels of containment, which is why they allow that needle to be used for preparation. However, once you move outside of that biosafety cabinet to go administer, that, that closed system transfer device is now required, right? Because you are now not um, potentially moving throughout the hospital or relocating to another area. So Four main points of USP 800, proper PPE, closed system transfer devices for administration recommended uh, for preparation, and then our two different engineering controls, that primary being our biosafety cabinet or hood, and our secondary, which is that negative pressure room in which um, the hood is located. Now, Mm. with all of that said, Um, Like Danny mentioned, the enforcement of USP 800 is kind of all over the map, kind of depending where you are located, what state you're in and what their what their enforcement is. I will tell you that it is being enforced. Um, I have been told of multiple facilities um, once by OSHA, a couple of times by state pharmacy boards. They are. enforcing these rules. So the minimum fine for not following USP 800 as according to a state pharmacy board is about $75,000 for a minimum fine, right? So it's no joke. Um, And the reason that these safety handling guidelines are put in place is, you know, we know, especially watching our, our human counterparts, that chronic exposure to these medications can cause negative impacts on healthcare workers. As veterinary staff, we have those same exposures and potentially, like Danny said, those those other long-term effects. Now, when we work with things like diagnostic radiation, like x-rays, we have a dosimetry badge, right, that measures the amount of radiation that we've been exposed to. And there is an allowable exposure limit that we have as as health professionals that we can, can be exposed to. There is no way to monitor or measure chronic exposure to chemotherapy drugs. So instead of saying there is this allowable, acceptable limit, because we cannot measure that from one person to the other, my metabolism is going to be different than Yvonne's and Danny's. So what my exposure level is, is going to be very different. It's very independent. So instead of saying there is an allowable exposure limit, it has now been stated in USP 800 that there is no acceptable allowable exposure to these group one drugs. So that is why all of these guidelines have been put into place. As far as chemotherapy administration goes, again, you're going to be wearing that proper PPE, um, which is going to include that uh, cuffed impervious disposable gown that should be disposed of um, 
after every single patient. And yes, that can get costly, but that's why we put in those treatment costs um, into um, our treatment plans. So the owners know about that and those costs can be covered. Uh, a few other little guidelines as far as administration, where you administer that chemotherapy matters, right? We don't want you carrying chemotherapy to all different exam rooms, you know, giving it in multiple areas. We want you to pick one spot and stick to it. If it can be inside your secondary engineering containment, that's okay. As long as that room is large enough, you can administer within that room as well. And that works great because then everything is contained, right? So if there's a spill, you're technically still in a negatively vented space uh, as far as exposure goes. I always recommend using lure lock syringes and not lure slip syringes. There are some of our closed system transfer devices that don't have a locking mechanism. So if you're using lure slip, it can just slip right off, which is not closed <laughs> in my opinion. Mm -hmm. um, so make sure we use those lure lock syringes. You also want to make sure if you are the one preparing that chemotherapy, never fill your syringes more than about 70% full, right? So think about when you have a really full 20 mil syringe full of propofol that you take down to CT, you put it in your pocket. And by the time you get to CT, you probably have like 19.2 mils because it's <laughs> kind of squished out, right? That's not something that we want to happen, right, with chemotherapy. So we want to make sure that we don't overfill those syringes. It's also very easy to push those plungers out and cause a large voluminous spill um, in that situation as well. Uh, as far as the patient goes, we want to make sure that our, if we're giving this IV, it's going to be a clean stick, right? We want to make sure that um, we know that we have good venous access. This is not going to be one of those catheters that you muck around with a little bit and you go, I think it's good. <laughs> um, that, that doesn't work, right? These, a lot of these drugs can actually cause some pretty significant tissue damage and necrosis if given paravascular. So one clean stick, we never want to tape over that insertion site. So we can also see the site if the patient starts to develop any redness um, or if it starts to become perivascular, we start to see some leaking. That's something we need to know about immediately. There are specific extravasation protocols depending on the chemotherapy drug um, that you are giving. So there are specific antidotes or things to do um, depending on those drugs. So our vinca alkaloids like vincristine and vinblastine have a specific extravasation protocol. Doxorubicin or anthracyclines have a specific extravasation protocol. Uh, mustardin, which is also a really nasty one um, and the worst for extravasation, in my opinion, uh, also has a specific protocol as well. So if you are giving these drugs, those extravasation protocols should be something that's posted in your administration area. This is not something you want to learn how to do when it happens, right? This Ugh. is something you need to know about, you should be trained, and those protocols should be posted um, that everyone is aware of. Also with chemotherapy administration, we don't want to use a ton of really thick bedding to put these patients on during their administration, because what happens if you have a spill? Now you have soaked up bedding, right? So if Fifi comes in with her little cute pink bed and she sits in all the time, we really want to take Fifi out of her cute little pink bed because we don't want to have to dispose of that um, as, as chemotherapy soil the waste. Um, other things for chemotherapy administration, make sure that that area that you choose, if it's not inside your secondary containment room, it's nice and quiet. 
we don't want it next to the break room or the refrigerator, right? Because that's going to be closer um, in area to where those hazardous drugs are handled. And because they are group one, we know all of those problems that they can cause from long-term exposure. So nice, quiet um, place away from the hustle and bustle of the main hospital. Also want to make sure if these patients, one that comes to mind for me, um, if, you know, some of our patients are just not fantastic um, chemotherapy <laughs> candidates, especially for doxorubicin, that has to be given in our dogs about a milligram per minute. So if you have a meter squared dog, that's about a minimum of 30 minutes of infusion. Um, mm. One of my residents had a German shepherd and you guys know German shepherds are either really great or they're really crazy, right? There's like no in between. Um, and this was one of the crazy ones. I loved her, but she was a little wonky. Um, and that patient we had to sedate. So never, ever as a technician, be afraid to go to your clinician and say, Hey, you know, I would really feel safe if we had some, some chemical restraint on board. Now that said, we do know that some of our chemotherapies can cause allergic reactions and doxorubicin is a big one. Doxorubicin can cause histamine release. So we do need to monitor those patients for, um, reactions as well. That said, I would much rather have an alive dog with no extravasation by the end of the infusion and treat that, that reaction um, than not having the option to treat that reaction um, because the patient is now going to lose a limb. So yeah. um, that's a lot of time, the, 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 the kind of the balance that you have to play there. Um, anything that I missed for administration that you want to cover, Danny? I mean, honestly, one of the biggest ones is going to be the waste. So where to put things, um, mm. most oncology technicians or those who have an oncology department are very well aware of the yellow hazardous waste, right? So <laughs> red is for sharks, yellow is for our chemo waste. What we don't always realize or stress is that's trace chemotherapy. Yeah, so that's an empty bottle, an empty syringe, um, your materials, your gloves, those kind of things. If you have a bottle that has far more of that in it, or for some reason you pulled up a drug. And so that is a full syringe. There's actually a black bin and that's what those should be going into. Mm. So just keeping that in mind. Um, and whoever does your disposal should know about black bins and you should be able to contact them to find out about more about those. Absolutely. So. And if, if you are using methyl chlorethamine or mustogen mm. there, uh, you want to make sure that you're going to deactivate um, the remainder mm -hmm. of that mustogen before, um, it is disposed of. Um, I also like to mention with that one, um, a lot of the HEPA filters and standard filters, especially like our respirators that we use for the other chemotherapies are not actually effective against mechlorethamine. It has to be a charcoal filter. So if you don't have that that's potentially a drug that should not be used. It's very dangerous. I hate that. I could do a whole talk yeah. on mean, I swear. Um, and so- Especially fitted masks, the whole, right. the whole bit. Yeah. And the last thing about chemotherapy administration that I wanted to mention is that, yes, these things can absolutely be expensive, right? Because I'm, just the construction of the rooms alone, mm -hmm. negative pressure, upkeep of that, the closed system, the PPE with the gowns, uh, we know that a lot of regular vets will end up doing chemotherapy and they'll go back to them because of cost, right? Because they can charge less. They don't have these things. Yeah. I want you to make sure 
that if you are one of those people that you really understand that that dog's access to chemotherapy does not trump your own health. And yeah. so in practicing that way and doing it that way is putting you at risk and it's a risk you can't really see. So it's very hard to internalize that that is a risk. Um, and, 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 and let's throw this out there. Like just because it's always been done like that and it was done like that for years does not mean it's appropriate. Now it's that whole, we know better, we should do better. And I, you can say no, like if, if, Mm -hmm. if your employer wants you to do something that is an OSHA hazard, it's an OSHA violation. Like you're allowed to say no, like you do not have to give chemo. You do not have to take that guilt of if I don't give chemo, this patient won't get it like that. Again, (laughs) like we need to be advocates for ourselves and for our coworkers. And so it's just. Absolutely. Well, and I, I I will, I will soapbox with you guys. Absolutely. Well, I think (laughs) it's important to know, and you know, I, I certainly never want to encourage certain things, but if you are in a situation working that you feel unsafe and you know, for a fact, there are really bad practices happening, you can call OSHA um, and you can make a, a, a tip, right? Um, and by law, if they receive a complaint, it has to be investigated. And I feel like that is what's going to happen to really start seeing some of these USP 800 yeah. guidelines being enforced. You never have to be in a scenario or situation where you feel unsafe. There are resources out there for you uh, and people out there that want to keep you safe. So, so like Yvonne said, you, you don't have to be in that situation. Just say no. Well, and I think too, like, because I would love for everyone that works in veterinary medicine to hear this lecture, right? <laughs> like talking about safety, but you know, if have that conversation with your tech friends and be like, Hey, you know, do you do chemo and just know that like, here's some information because the more people understand, especially if it's someone who's never gone to school and never been trained, if that's like the first clinic they've ever worked at and that's all they know without somebody telling them that like, they're not going to know, they think that they're being protected and they may not be, and it may not be malicious, but Please help spread the word guys. (laughs) And it's not just oncology technicians. So internal Mm -hmm. medicine, I know that use chlorambucil, right? Because for those, the IBDs, um, that may or may not be small cell lymphoma, but that is a drug that is used pretty regularly for those, um, conditions. And so knowing the hazard of handling those so that you can also pass that on to Mm -hmm. the clients for sure. Um, neurology technicians use a lot of cytarabine. Cytosar, yeah, uh, for various neural conditions that are not cancer, actually, and so that one is is it can be given sub Q, so there is a risk there of spill, right? <laughs> Any sub Q injection, um, or it's also given over twenty four hours, a continuous um, drip. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. knowing how to handle patient excretions and such when giving and knowing that you need to use the closed system, which you can't do for sub Q, but you can for the IV Mm -hmm. um, and how to handle that. So if someone is monitoring over 24 hours, that spills over into an ER, if you have one of those or an overnight technician who's caring for them. So they need to know 
all of this information as well, especially how to handle those, what the excretion is, because mm-hmm. um, cytosol is actually one of those that is excreted a ton in the urine. So making sure they understand that risk, because one of the biggest risks um, for that one is fertility as well. So keeping mm. that in mind. And then also for emergency, even internal medicine is vincristine. Yeah. If the clinicians use that for um, ITP and getting our platelets going, uh, knowing how to administer that because that one is a vesicant. So if it gets outside the vein, it does actually cause tissue damage, uh, not as severe as what Jenny spoke of earlier, but being aware of all of those things. I do know of IM departments that there's not an oncology department in there, but they want to use vincristine and they don't have the hood, um, or safety cap, mm. biologic safety cabinet, um, or that negative pressure room. And they don't understand why it would be a problem for them to have it because they only use it sometimes. And just remember, we don't, there's no accepted exposure. So for a person. So all of that is very, very important to have and know. Yeah. Just and listen that, to my ITP lecture, um, episode because it's, it's been kind of debunked. So don't do it. But anyway, <laughs> um, yes, that, I was going to say, so that is the other thing I could absolutely go down that. I know doctors who do not do that because just cause it forces the baby platelets out doesn't mean that they're functional. Exactly. But that, but that's the other too. episode. <laughs> See, look at, I knew something I am related about that that's drug. Good job. Uh, so that leads us to like our patient handling, right? So Jenny went over all of the drugs and how we stay safe when we're handling the drugs. And then it goes to patient handling. Mm-hmm. So as the technician who's handling the patient, you need to know about the excretion of the drugs that that patient is either getting that day um, or has gotten in the past because some of those excretion times are longer than others. Uh, Cytosar is like primarily excreted, I think within 20 minutes to the first hour. So they're still in the hospital knowing that it can be that fast. Um, and then some of them are 21 days. Mm. So for oncology purposes, a lot of our chemotherapies require a CBC to be drawn, um, seven to 10 days after chemotherapy administration. There are some that it is longer for sure, but that's kind of the standard. So if you're thinking about the fact that those drugs are excreted and present, because they can also be present in the serum um, of blood as well, that when you're handling those patients that you could be handling that. Now there's not as much risk, honestly, if you're handling those patient samples, um, because you're usually not dumping blood on you because ew. Uh, <laughs> um, Hopefully that so doesn't happen. <laughs> right. It's not as big of a danger. It is a very small amount, but it's definitely something to keep in mind. If you have someone who's on your team, who's pregnant, who's doing all the other, like staying away from chemo administration, all that, Oh, I'll do recheck appointments. Keep that in mind for them. That, that also patient handling is also a route of exposure. Hmm. Um, we always want to wear gloves. Like Jenny said, chemotherapy rated, it's got it on the back. Um, of the box. A lot of times I don't even tell you which chemotherapy agents, uh, a lot of nitrile, uh, gloves are chemotherapy rated. So just paying attention to that, uh, and wear gloves because you don't know the immune status of that patient. So I said that we need to check that CBC. What we're looking for are those white blood cell counts to make sure that we have an appropriate number to fight off any kind of infection because it affects neutrophils. 
if they don't really have any, you don't know that by looking at them because some don't show any symptoms. They are mm. just happy golden retrievers bouncing around. And so you want to make sure you already have gloves on because you get them back, you've drawn their blood, you've probably given them a treat and mm. spoiled the heck out of them, rubbing all over them, run the blood. Oops, we don't have any neutrophils. So that's a big deal. And we want to make sure that we have the gloves on ahead of time so that we are keeping them safe. Um, because you never know what you have touched in the hospital. And as an oncology technician, I will say it is, if you have a lot of other services in your hospital that deal in puppies and kittens, like mm. random emergencies with broken legs, do not touch those, uh, mainly because they haven't finished their vaccine, vaccine series. Um, and so the likelihood that they could transmit something is a lot higher and your patients may or may not be able to fight that off, whereas a normal patient would. So it is best. I always got excited when all of my appointments were done for the day. I was like, that puppy needs to stay until I'm done because I will come <laughs> and pet it and you save it for the end of the day so right. that I can play with it. Um, so that's a big one. And then minimizing patient licking, which is oh, really yeah. hard to do, right? Like you're, you can't stop them. There are dogs. You just cannot stop that. <laughs> However, don't put your face there because it has been shown that there are specific chemotherapies that are in saliva. Mm. And so you can be exposed that way. So remembering that, because we're going to touch on that again in the client education piece, right. but really, I mean, cause we love loving on these guys. We see them weekly at times, but you can absolutely be exposed that way. So minimize that as much as possible. Um, and that that's a lot of, they're handling. So if they're going to stay in the hospital though, or in the clinic, um, when like we get drop-offs a lot, right. Mm -hmm. There's only so many appointments that are seen in a day, a lot of our chemotherapies, um, to make it easy for our clients, like they can drop off. Um, I know some places that don't do appointments at all. They do all drop-offs and then everyone's treated and then they get to go back home as soon as they're done. So when these kids are put into cages and kennels. You want them separate from other patients, separate from that busy flow, mainly because of, you don't know what any of those other patients have, um, or don't have. And just if one of them urinates in a cage or a kennel, we want to minimize that exposure to those other pets too, because for us humans, we can usually tolerate a larger dose of chemotherapy. So that exposure wouldn't affect us as much as say, if the little Maltese is walking through. So mm. keeping that in mind too, who might be immune compromised because it's an IM patient. <laughs> so trying to keep them separate as possible. There's nothing that will officially remove chemotherapy trace. Just, you know, there's nothing that has been proven to remove all traces of chemotherapy. If there's ever exposure spillage somewhere, we have a four-step process for cleaning it up to minimize that as much as possible and remove as much as we can, but those cages. So we want to just keep designated cages if we can. I know not everyone can my last hospital. We could not, but it was always yeah. a, okay, these guys are all here. Hey, my chemo patients are down over here. So yeah. just so you know, they're over here. Please don't put the lepto suspect next to them. <laughs> right. I would prefer that not to happen. Um, and then we, again, want to make sure that we're handling with them with gloves. Um, and if it is a different caretaker, so if they're hospitalized and it is a different caretaker, you want them designated to patients who do not have infectious diseases. So, mm -hmm. uh, and are not treating the puppies or kittens. So the person who's going into isolation, taking care of Parvo should not be taking care of your oncology patient. No, 
ever. <laughs> so keep that in mind when like designating nursing care for those patients. Um, if they do make a mess, because you know, not everybody can hold it. When we're looking at their laundry, you want to designate specifically that laundry because you want to wash it twice. Uh, and you definitely want to wash it with bleach, at least one of those. If you save that bedding. Uh, we used to have designated chemo bedding and we would, we would wash it and use like, that was our room. Like that's our stuff. Like that's the mm. ones that we use for these patients. Um, and then what comes right behind that is cage cleaning. Mm. Normally you have spray cleaners that just about everybody uses for cages. We never want to spray a cage that a chemotherapy patient has been in because spraying gives us the chance to aerosolize. We don't want that because you're not usually wearing face protection for that. So when we're cleaning those cages, we want to wipe them down. So if you're spraying, if you have a spray, you can spray it on a cloth and do it that way. Mm. Or there are like, if you use rescue, like there's rescue wipes or Clorox wipes, which if you're, if you have metal cages, that gets a little dicey with the Clorox wipes, but you want to wipe everything down. You don't want to spray it. And then same principle with bathing a patient who may or may not have made a mess on themselves right? Like you don't want to just mm. spray them down. Um, we had, I had a, a site as our patient that urinated all over itself in the cage shortly after we gave it. And I was like, Oh no. So mm. don full PPE because the splash risk was very real. And then you're getting wet towels, the waterless shampoo that you put on a towel, baby wipes, those type of things. Uh, we had used a rescue wipe, you have to make sure one, you're not putting that on their bare skin and that you rinse that back off if you are doing that, but spraying them down is not an ideal thing to do. Yeah. Mm. Always, always, always take your chemotherapy patients out to pee before chemotherapy. Is yeah. <laughs> oh my yeah. God. So true. Um, and we want to make sure that they actually, USP 800 does have language in it that there needs to be designated places for chemotherapy patients to, um, to urinate and that it, it should be marked. So it shouldn't be the same place that you're walking all of those others, all mm. those other hospitalized patients. There should be a designated place. I know we used to call it chemo Island because it was like partially down and it was always in the same place. Um, if we had owners who were bringing their pets in for appointments, we would let them know like, Oh, if they really needed to go, they could walk them over there and recommend that they walk them in that spot as well. So it was like a place that clients could get to. It was never the yard where like every, if you have an enclosed one, that's not where we took our chemo patients just because we don't want bad things to happen, right? Never hmm. ever. So when we're talking to our clients, obviously letting them know why they would have to walk their dog over there. Um, we want to first talk to them about the excretion of that drug as well. So once we know it, we know it's keeping us safe. We're keeping all of the other employees safe. We also want to let our CSRs know our front desk, because if those dogs urinate in the lobby or they defecate in the lobby because they get nervous or whatever it is or excited, they should know that that's a risk and how to properly clean that up as well um, as the clients. So making sure everyone knows what excretion is and how to do it, letting them know, especially we give them chemo and then they go home, right? They're not sitting in the hospital for those three days where it's excreting. So we have to let them know a time frame. So yes, this one is generally three days um, that you want to be careful and you want to make sure you're explaining exactly who should and should not be handling those. 
So the same kind of thing, immune compromised should not handle that. Pregnant should not handle that. Children, because children are not great about recognizing that they should then wash their hands or not <laughs> shove their fingers in their mouth after that. Um, and that licking, so minimizing that at home, that breaks parent, the, the client's hearts sometimes, but just, and we know you can't help it and it is going to be minimal. So is it going to kill the owner if their dog is licking them? No, I mean, it's not, but it's knowing you want to minimize that risk as much as possible. So letting them know, and then letting them own whether or not they want to take that risk, they at least have been informed of it. Um, like Jenny said, there is chemotherapy, the metronomic that we send home. So we need to make sure they understand the risk to themselves and how to minimize all that with administration, um, with like, don't break your tablets or your capsules open ever. Make sure you're giving a whole piece. Um, <laughs> I can't stress that enough. Whole piece. <laughs> Um, and that's, we get a lot of ours like compounded to a specific size and they can compound them in various ways. Now, um, gosh, they can even do chewies with chemotherapy now, which is crazy. Cause that used to be very much taboo. Um, and now it's not, so that's great. Uh, they can do liquids, be very careful liquids. with liquids though, <laughs> because so if they say they want a liquid, you get that compounded to a really high strength so that they're giving a minimal amount because the chance of spilling that, getting it all over the pet, all over the client, all over everything is a lot higher, yeah. especially if it's a cat. <laughs> so yeah. keep that in mind when we're creating, um, or compounding drugs for these guys. So the handling and cleaning of their patient. So cleaning is the same. They can use a regular detergent to clean an area, letting them know like the spraying that they, we don't recommend spraying, um, the same things that we tell people if the, they're staying in the hospital, right? So if we have soiled bedding, make sure that they're washing it twice separate from other things. If they save it at all versus throwing it away. Um, and then we also want them to know, uh, that if they have other pets in the house with the ones that are in the saliva, they shouldn't share water dishes or litter boxes that kind of thing, not always avoidable. So again, it's also letting them know what that risk is so that they can make that decision, what works best for them and what they're willing to accept. So always just want to educate, 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 educate. <laughs> and then we also want to talk about our chemotherapy side effects because that's a big part of what we do. I'm not going to lie. I used to say like 75% of my job was taking care of my clients yeah. because chemotherapy side effects are a big deal to them. They think that all the bad things that happen to people are going to happen to their pets, which is not entirely the case because our doses are different. And you know, dogs and cats, they're actually just different and yeah. differently, but knowing what those are. So knowing what an immediate side effect, what was Jenny mentioned that anaphylactic reaction that you can have with one of the chemotherapies. So them knowing that when they're leaving, like they didn't have it there, there's not really a high chance that it could happen, but it could. So really explaining what side effects they would see when in oncology, we've got the timing of when something would happen. So mm. not a lot of chemotherapies have immediate reactions. So a lot of times if they have an immediate reaction, it could be from the stress of coming in or from something else. Uh, so we keep an eye on that to see if it happens again, because yeah. we would want to make sure that that truly is from the chemotherapy. Um, 
And then if they're going to have what we call true side effects, where it is those GI signs, so they're inappetent, um, they get nauseous, which usually shows up as they don't want to really eat, uh, or if they're going to have diarrhea, we usually see those show up around the third day after chemotherapy. Um, they're usually self-limiting. So they start to resolve around six or seven days. So honestly, for these guys, we don't want them to go through those several days of not feeling good and ill, <laughs> right? So as soon as we know that those side effects have started, we want to get medications into them to stop those things. We want our meropotence or our metoclopramide, um, metronidazole, all those kind of things to go yeah, ahead. And I was minimize say, our, our oncologists usually just go, so here are these drugs, use them as needed. And we're like, mm-hmm. all right. <laughs> they're very much an as needed. I will tell you owners don't always recognize. So as an <sighs> oncology yeah. technician, I always did my callbacks three days after chemo to find out how that pet was doing, especially if it was the first time they got that, to find mm. out how they're doing. They're like, oh yeah, we didn't eat breakfast today. And you'd be like, mm-hmm. okay. Is that so we're normal gonna, for him? Yeah, we're gonna go ahead and give the meropotin that we sent home then. Well, I don't think, you know, let's just make sure because mm. they can't talk. So we don't know how bad we feel. And then they'll be like, oh, they started eating again and it's so great. And then they only have to give them for a short period of time. Yeah. It's usually just fine. Um, but then we have the side effects of our neutropenia, right? So three to about that third day is when the side effects going to happen. So if we suddenly we've been eating this whole time and seven days after we got chemotherapy, we suddenly lose our appetite. That is a big red flag that Mm -hmm. we might be neutropenic. Um, if they get like really lethargic, um, febrile, if they take the temperature at home, uh, those are emergencies and they should come in and get blood work immediately to see exactly how neutropenic we are. Um, but that's why that history taking is so important because did it start at three days? Did it start at seven days? Because those are very different issues. Yeah. (laughs) One's an emergency. One is not. (laughs) So we always want to check on that, um, for them. And that is a majority of the safety. I know it seems like a lot, and it should. And I'm just going to say again, <laughs> that their well-being is not more important than yours. Yeah. Well, and I think it's important too, like when, when you work in a place that does chemotherapy, um, that you're constantly vigilant, right. And, and mm-hmm. making sure that, that everybody's aware of what to be looking for, how to handle the patients, um, you know, what, what new regulations are out there because there, there are new things that come out. And so, you know, if that, if you're really into just oncology or OSHA or any of that, like if you want to be the person to kind of tackle that and get a protocol for your, for your hospital, I mean, that's huge. Um, not everybody wants to do that. So if you're into it, your, your boss is going to love you, (laughs) but, um, you know, I think that's, it's definitely important for people to know, even if you're not an oncology mm-hmm. again, cause everybody's, everybody kind of is oncology adjacent. <laughs> right. So. Uh, well and, um, if you're, you work at a, a general practice and maybe the owners do have cost issues, right? So they come to the oncologist to get the chemotherapy, but they do the follow blood work after mm-hmm. or any follow-up care is, 
done with you, you should definitely know about that excretion. And the last time that they got their chemotherapy, Mm -hmm. because that will also affect you. So everyone kind of needs that general knowledge about it. Even if you're not working in oncology. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet. I feel like this entire episode is a caution. Yeah. So I'm not sure we need to do a specific yeah. caution of yeah. the week. All of it. <laughs> I mean, maybe my biggest like tip of the week is like, you don't want to be afraid of it. Like chemotherapy, it shouldn't be scary. I know that it is. If you don't know anything about it, it is scary. Um, but you want respect. You need to respect yeah. the drug that you're handling. Not so much be afraid of it. Yeah. I'm not Healthy afraid. respect I mean, maybe- for it. Maybe I'm afraid of mechlorethamine. Let's, let's be real. But. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's not that one time exposure, right? It's not that this is going to be, you know, like Danny said, is that, one, is that one exposure going to kill you? Probably not. But chronic exposure is what leads to these long-term health complications. And so safety is not one piece, right? It's not just your PPE. It's not just your closed system. It's all four of those components. So if one of them yeah. fails then you have a backup mm-hmm. in place. So one-time exposure, right. not the scary stuff, the chronic exposure that, you know, that's where you really have to understand why these guidelines were, were put into place. Um, and my tip of the week, technicians ask questions, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, oh and, my God. and that's first time I ever gave chemotherapy. I was handed a syringe when I was like, a baby, baby tech, like six months out of school. And they said, go give this to the dog and run whatever. Um, and when I came back, they were like, oh, did you get that out of the vein? I, was like, I don't think so. And they said, oh, well, that was Vin Christine. Right. Like awful situation to put me in, but also awful of me that I asked, what was this after I had given it? Right. Don't yeah. ever be afraid to question, as long as you do it respectfully, to question what they're asking you to do. Um, so use your voice ask a lot of questions. And if you don't understand or feel comfortable, you have every right to say no. And you know, one of the other important things that I I didn't really touch on, but that making sure that your patients are labeled, um, whether they're getting a medication or if they got one, um, what that drug is, because you never know what individuals are facing or not talking about what your coworkers are going through. You don't know. Um, we, I had someone in a hospital who, um, my assistant forgot to label the cage, but the emergency technician had had childhood cancer and had realized that she is allergic and has reactions to Christine because of that. And that's what that dog had. And it turned into a very serious conversation because she went to go clean up after that dog. And she was like, wait, what kind of, she asked the question though. She was like, what kind, didn't this patient, wasn't it getting chemo? I thought this one was getting chemo. Did we get it? What is it? So she didn't touch it, which was great because she came through, but that turned into a very serious discussion saying, this is why we have to label it. Um, It's not, you never know. Well, and it's, you know, and that's another thing that you could do for your hospital is create those like cage signs, right? That says, I got X, Y, Z. This is how it excretes. Please wear this PPE, handle this, this way, that, that way. So there's no question. Right. And you don't have to be like, oh, right. So that was Cytosar and that excretes in the urine. Like just put it on there. Like Cytosol, Cytosar, urine excretion, wear gloves, separate, like all that stuff. And that way anyone (laughs) can, can know it. And, and we're properly labeling and it's a caution. I mean, it is a caution for that patient. So our, our 
cages should be labeled appropriately. So, And now for the question of the week. Do you have a copy of the NIOSH hazardous drug list in your hospital? Ooh. You don't, oh. you don't have to tell us this could be one of those yeah. self-reflection <laughs> introspective yeah. questions. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And, and we'll put the link to that you guys had, um, to, and just, just know that obviously this is March of 2022. <laughs> so, it is valid as of March, 2022, <laughs> please, please update. Cause again, you know, um, things get updated. So, and look for new resources. <laughs> I also put out a consensus statement oh, nice. on chemotherapy, the use of chemotherapy. And it is really great. It goes over excretions. Um, close. It has a lot of the components of USP 800 written into it. Nice. So that is also a really great um, document to have and be able to read through. It's an easier read. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. (laughs) All right. Any, anything else that we need to cover before you leave? I think that's it. Oh my God. I know. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Here's my, um, my secondary question for, for people. Um, if you want to know more oncology things, what would you want to know? Because then I could maybe rope these people into coming back <laughs> at some point in their lives to talk about other things, but Ooh, um, let's talk about radiation. <laughs> <laughs> we could do a whole episode on radiation. Yes. I mean, talk about like what, that what's not cancer that you can radiate because internal Ooh. medicine would probably be involved. Oh, in that. not good. What is it? Uh, nodular dermatofibrosis. I've Ooh, seen. I don't even. Know oh, it's that awful. One. You should look it up. Um, but we've done radiation for that, <laughs> and it's it's super cool. But yeah, lots of non-neoplastic <laughs> things that we use radiation for as well. All right. Nice. All right. Well, uh, thank you guys so much for being in this series. Um, I I definitely couldn't have sounded this smart without you guys. Um, so hopefully everybody listening got a ton of information and, you know, even if you don't know everything that they're talking about, if it gets you curious, um, if these ladies definitely speak at conferences, so I'm sure if you have questions, you can, you can reach out to them. I know they'd be happy to, to, if, you know, send you to a specific resource or even answer your questions. So, um, you know, if, if you need to, I know how to get a hold of them, <laughs> just let us know. But thank you guys and um everybody keep getting your learn on and uh yeah say hi to these ladies if you see them at a conference bye jenny bye danny bye, bye. thank you yvonne for doing this <laughs> this is pretty amazing you should be pretty proud of what you've done here um and thank, thank, thanks for having us <laughs> i'm just glad you guys said yes <laughs> always ditto you know what she said. Aw. <laughs> well, thanks for letting us use your brains. So Anytime. All right, ladies, have a good one. Bye, ladies. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast. And make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? Please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher, and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettechs.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.